Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about disposability. We've become a bunch of tossers. I want to start this conversation by painting a picture from a video that I recently saw on a talk about supply chain management. And it may seem a little bit odd to connect the concept of of the trucking industry and the delivery of products and merchandise with environmentalism, especially with this being my first really dip into the question of environmentalism to begin with. And I'm going to keep it simple to get a start on it. However, I think this video put it in, into a pretty stark picture of kind of meet where the rubber meets the road. First off, what is supply chain management? Because this talk was from the editor of a book uh, where the uh, resources he collaborated with others to pull together is called Supply Chain Can Save the World. It wasn't just a, uh, an environmental premise, but that was one of them. Well, supply chain is the concept of all of the movement of goods and resources in order to deliver what ultimately happens at the shelf or at the cash register. So if you imagine yourself in a store picking an item up and taking it up to the cashier to buy it, the supply chain is everything that led to that moment. It wasn't just how the uh, owner of the store got the product delivered to that location and put on the shelf. It's much more. Supply chain would be about the raw materials that are mined in a far in a faraway place and then delivered via various means of transportation to a manufacturer who uses those materials in creating the product in the first place. And then how does the manufacturer get the product to whoever's doing the selling? If you assume it's not a direct wholesaler, there's going to be a delivery of some sort, probably to a warehouse or a distribution center, perhaps by a retailer, perhaps by an online retailer. And whether you've seen the item on your computer and clicked it to buy it, or whether you've walked into a store and you know actually become part of the supply chain process by delivering yourself to the store, the item was shipped from manufacturer to retailer and then from retailer to the store or you. And all of these things are elements of supply chain management. And there's a tremendous amount of good that can be done and a lot of low-hanging fruit available in terms of trying to say, if our use of fossil fuels is a problem. Either it's a problem because of concepts that I'm not going to get anywhere near today, like global warming or whatnot, or it's a problem because it represents an expensive commodity and therefore a good economic opportunity. Anything that can be used to make the supply chain more sustainable is environmentally friendly at the same time. Or to put it in another way, this video that I saw right at the beginning of this talk, and I don't remember the name of the video, I don't think the name was given. But I'm going to try to paint the picture created by this video to give you a sense of what the issues are on the other end if we don't manage the supply chain well. What happens if we only have half-filled cargo boats and barges traveling across the ocean not at capacity and therefore creating the need to double the amount of oceanic transport to deliver either items from uh, manufacturer to retail or the raw materials like petroleum? What happens if the same thing uh, is true on the way to stores? where the planning involved in trying to get uh, a store delivered with a full truck of product doesn't work. And you end up with highways where all the semi-trucks that you see as you're driving down the road in a major city or on an interstate 
aren't full to capacity either and don't have the, the planning, the art and science of supply chain logistics, because it is both an art and a science. If that hasn't been done well, not only do you're using up all the gasoline for something that has got a lot of available cubic space, but you're probably going to have to send another truck twice as soon as you otherwise would have to cover the opportunity represented by the empty space that's inside the truck. Or the other extreme, what happens if people are too optimistic, too aggressive, or too careless in the way they bring in supplies? So you bring in too much raw material and you don't need those materials to do your manufacturing. Or what happens if the stores uh, get overstocked by the retailer and therefore you've got this, this product on the shelf which didn't need to be sent, didn't need to be on the road, so to speak. And what if those products are perishable? Well, first off, there's something about retail that we probably don't think about on an everyday basis. But on one level, every retail item is perishable. It's perishable in the sense that it has a shelf life beyond which the retailer no longer has space to display it. And that shelf life is, of course, directly related to the customer's degree of interest. But the other kind of disposability is when you take this entire need, this critical need to manage the supply chain properly, what happens if it's food? What happens if the item that arrives at the store literally only has, in the case of maybe fresh fruit and some other items, a very short number of days before, if it isn't sold, bought, taken home, and consumed by the customer, it's waste. It's in this area that supply chain management represents a huge opportunity in the question of environmentalism, the question of disposability. But I want to hit it from another angle because I think it's very encouraging that there are retailers out there and manufacturers who are trying to find ways to better take care of planning the needs of people and getting the product directed toward those needs in such a way that there's the least amount of possible waste. No wasted space inside trucks, trains, and boats. No wasted gasoline. No duplicate deliveries when one delivery could have been uh, sufficient for the needs of both the customer and uh, any anyone else, you know, the stores uh, need to display product. The other thing, though, is the negative side of that. And that's that a lot of the products that I'm talking about themselves have become built for disposability. Uh, I want to use a couple of examples, one with an actual merchandise and the other one looking uh, at retail itself, perhaps you know, jumping up a few thousand feet and looking at city planning to talk about this question of wastefulness and disposability. And then finally, I'm going to come around to some of the things that I think we should do better as a society and perhaps even as a government. But first, from a product perspective, a couple of years ago, I bought a new razor and I have been a fairly loyal Remington customer from the electric razor perspective. Most of the electric razors I bought in my lifetime, and there have been quite a few, have been from this particular company. And I don't know why I keep going back to them. It's certainly a compliment to them from the perspective of they've got a product that I've relied upon. Whether the product is actually reliable or not um, could be inferred, but it may not be true. The thing that I think I've come to assume anymore, and it's not just about this one company, it's all their other competitors as well, is I assume that the life of the product that I'm buying is not going to be very long. I picked up one of the disposable head razors a few years ago where you um, – you change the entire razor blade assembly as opposed to trying to disassemble it and clean it on a regular basis. So you're literally throwing away just the, a very small portion of the razor every you know few weeks, getting rid of it, putting in a brand new one. And the, the blade and the micro screens that support the blade are actually part of the trash, for want of a better word. That's not the disposability issue that I've got. In some ways, 
that's not inherently more wasteful than it needs to be. It's, it's bordering on it. Now, the problem that I had was the first time I went to the store to look for replacement heads for this electric razor, it took me three or four visits and a little bit of luck to find anything on the shelf to satisfy my needs at all. This could just be a sign that I'm not a popular buyer. Then in other words, I don't follow the trend. And if I'd picked the model that everyone else has picked, that I would be much more likely to find all the parts and replacement parts that I need. So some of that's on me as being perhaps not a discerning shopper or maybe a touch too brand loyal. I don't know. Now, the other problem that I had was it wasn't long before there was no place in the United States of America to obtain this product at all, even via the Internet. The last time I bought this uh, replacement blades for this razor, I had to do it on eBay to buy it as if it were a closeout item on a razor that isn't, you know, two and a half years old even. But the time before that, I did find a retailer who could sell me the replaceable heads for this razor in Canada. I was more than happy to do it. I, I don't mind you know, crossing borders to do this kind of, of retail commerce exchange. But it just seemed interesting to me that within less than a year of buying the brand new razor, the parts were unavailable. And the assumption, I think, uh, on the part of the company, and I haven't asked, so I don't know. I'm not quoting them. But my guess is they felt like this was probably a two-year product. And after two years, I, as a consumer, would either get bored and pick the, the next big thing, or the product itself would in some way disappoint me or fail me, and I'd be forced to upgrade or change models. And I don't know how you do business that way without me, at some point, deciding that I'm not just going to change the model that I'm using for an electric razor. I'm going to change the company I do business with as well. I recently did that in a similar vein with a beard trimmer. The beard trimmer that I have used for most of the last 30 years, I took to college with me. Now, I don't know whether I was a freshman or sophomore, but very early in my college experience, I took a beard trimmer to, to the university. And only just about a year and a half ago, that beard trimmer finally gave it up. So close to three decades of service. Now, this isn't like an electric razor where you're using it every day on the parts of your face that you do shave. It's not like you know other items that get a lot of wear and tear. Uh, I'm like an every three-week pattern, maybe a little more, give or take three weeks on, on beard trimming activity. So something like 16 to 18 times a year this device is being used. But I also am not that aggressive about maintenance, especially on something that didn't really cost all that much to begin with, uh, $15, $20. I don't remember the price back in 1980-whatever. But I wasn't you know, oiling any of the mechanisms on a regular basis. The only thing I would change out was batteries. And yet this item was reliable and practical and served me well for all that time. I can guarantee you the beard trimmer that I have today purchased from a different company just by happenstance, but the beard trimmer that I have today has no shot of lasting 30 years. I'll be shocked, in fact, if it lasts three. I probably would be having a similarly gloomy forecast if I'd rewarded the manufacturer who had served me well all that time and found a way to make a point to buy another beard trimmer by the same company. I may go back to that company after this one eventually craps out on me in a short period of time. You can just tell when you're holding it in your hand and using it as designed that it's not built to last. We have become a disposability-based economy. You think about it. Best value. The difference between Walmart and the kinds of stores that our parents would have shopped at for simple appliances, uh, toasters, what have you. 
we've become a country where we have voluntarily, I'm not pointing any accusing fingers or, or you know, calling any particular manufacturer or retailer or wholesaler evil here. We as customers have done this. We have voluntarily traded down in value to get a lower price. We call it best value, but what we really mean by that is cheaper. Now, from an environmental perspective, here's the issue with it. By trading down into cheaper, we have filled our landfills. By trading down into cheaper, we have exported manufacturing jobs from North America to other parts of the world where the labor itself is cheaper in order to make the economic model work when the product you're producing is less durable and less valuable, in part because it is cheaper. We have downgraded, in other words, without even realizing it. We have voluntarily gone in and traded in a deal that's given us more pollution, more questions about our landfill and about our environment and about the impact that can, that can have on climate and quality of life. And it's ultimately all on us. I mentioned that I think you could almost go a few thousand feet in the air and look on your average city and come away with a different conclusion about you know, what it means for a city center to function in a particular way. Because the same element of disposability is probably true in the way we handle our real estate. If you look at the uh, pharmacy and drugstore industry as an example, in the city where I live, in the span of about one mile, there are six stores that if you look at it from the strictest perspective and say, well, I'm not going to include Kmart and Sears because even though you can buy a lot of these over-the-counter type medicines, they don't have a pharmacy. So put the, put the standard pretty high to where a lot of grocery store chains will qualify because most of the really big grocery store chains will have a full line of over-the-counter medication, but they'll also have a pharmacy. But you put that together with a lot of the drug stores that open up for the specific purpose of doing pharmacy business and over-the-counter medication. And in a one-mile stretch, in a city that doesn't even have 200,000 people living in it, and in a part of the city that isn't necessarily the most populous area within that city, you've got a six drugstores within a mile of each other. Truthfully, you have five within one half of a mile of each other, and the other one is just a little bit further out than that. So you're driving down the road, and you have all of these options on where to make these purchases. Does anyone really believe that in a city with a population of, again, somewhere between 100, maybe 150,000 people, that this one stretch of town, not even the entire city, but this one stretch of town would need that many competing entities right across from each other? The other thing about it is that what you see is a lot of predatory kind of real estate activity where there's a little section in there where there's a grocery store and a couple blocks down there's a discount grocery store across the street from that is a discount drug store and a brand new one of the major brand new retailers has moved in with a brand new building right across the street from both the discount grocery store and the discount drug store depending on you know which uh, which road you're talking about so all of this activity happening um, had the half a mile further south what you end up with is another drugstore that has just now moved in. If they're open, they're just barely opened. And they're moving into a building that they themselves used to occupy. And to make the uh, whole situation more dubious from an environmental perspective, the building that they built originally from the ground up to their own specifications to compete right across the street with the big grocery store chain and also Kmart to a certain degree, since Kmart has always had, again, a small over-the-counter business, to move into this location, to move back there after having been gone for several years, 
with their empty building in the meantime being used for other purposes, you know, uniform shop, uh, flea market type places. They're now leveling it and essentially rebuilding the same store that was there before from the ground up. At some point, what's going on here is these drugstores, especially the big major chains, are moving in with hopes of running the existing businesses out of business. In other words, the second the ground broke on either one of those two new buildings here very recently, the goal was that that groundbreaking was going to create empty real estate directly across the street because head-to-head competition is taking place. Now, I always get a, bit, a little bit amused when my friends who are more politically conservative than I am, who also happen to uh, be opposed, at least on a moral level, with what we would call social Darwinism, don't seem to be as disturbed by this trend as I am. I see this trend as nothing more than sort of an economic um, retail Darwinism, where we're going to have two businesses and within a, a mile of each other, two sets of two businesses, going head to head with existing businesses, with the ultimate goal of being an empty building somewhere, an empty building that might sit empty for quite some time if we've over retailed ourselves. And why did we over retail ourselves in this one mile stretch of an otherwise small town with the exact same kind of business? providing the exact same product offerings. And not to insult any friends of mine who might work in the drugstore industry, but this is not fashion-forward business. You know, Theoretically, if you go and get an antibiotic from one of these pharmacies, you're expecting it to be identical at the molecular level to any other pharmacy that might provide you that antibiotic to fill the prescription that your doctor wrote for you, expecting that no matter where you fill, that it was going to be identical at the molecular level to what he had in mind. And from an over-the-counter perspective, you know, Tylenol may be the brand name behind acetaminophen, but the acetaminophen is the same in both products, whether Tylenol or a generic brand, and the Tylenol is the same Tylenol that might be available as a painkiller across the street in the brand new store, or on this side of the street with the store that's been around for a decade or more. So there's a disposability in the way that we're handling our real estate, where you know, not to be grim here, but unless a tornado comes and levels a building, at some point, we may be doing that ourselves. Because ultimately, you're either going to try to replace the building that was built for a specific purpose and modify it to an existing purpose. Hence, you're putting a, a, a uniform shop that sells scrubs to, to doctors and nurses, or, you know, perhaps you know, turning it into a used record store, or maybe you know, turning it into one of those giant liquor stores. I don't know what you're going to do with it ultimately. I just know that there's very little chance that a couple of years from now, there's still going to be six drugstores in this one mile stretch. Uh, it seems beyond the realm of possibility. Living in a place where the population is not particularly sickly or particularly aging. So what do we do about it? I don't want to speak to the real estate side of things. I want to speak instead back to the products and say, I've seen in my own life, one real life example of me as a customer making a response to what I consider to be a very poor environmental practice and a very um, offensive form of intentional disposability. And then I want to maybe suggest that we do the same. When I get back from a break here in just a second, what I want to offer is an answer to the question of why do I not now own a Blu-ray player? Somebody who loves movies has spoken about movies. Episode 50 is all about movies as the most significant art form in my lifetime. I own a lot of DVDs, and before that, I've owned other formats like VHS and Laserdisc and Betamax. Why would I draw the line at Blu-ray? Have I just learned from my past mistakes, or is there a bigger message being shared? 
Do you love Star Trek? How about a good scary movie? Do sexy warrior princesses haunt your dreams? Then you'll love Starbase 66, the international Star Trek horror and fantasy podcast. Join Rick, Karen, and Kennedy each week as they discuss your favorite and not-so-favorite movies and TV shows, only on the Simply Syndicated 21st Century Media Network. I'm not a big fan of heavy-handed government intervention. I believe that a lot of the most creative minds in our country are pretty far away from being in what we would call government jobs or government positions. I think that the entrepreneurial spirit is just that, a spirit that has to be free to roam and to explore. But when HD DVD, uh, primarily a Toshiba product, if I'm not mistaken, and Blu-ray, primarily a Sony product at the time, were competing head-to-head with each other to decide which one was going to replace DVD, there were two problems that I saw right off. First, I wasn't sure what was so deficient about DVD that it needed to be replaced. And people could you know, do me the favor of sharing me all the, the many reasons from a technical perspective. And just know going in, you're probably not going to persuade me. As uh, you may recall from when I was talking about the uh, artistry of filmmaking, I spent a lot of time talking about films that were made before World War II. Some even before, and well, actually shot during World War I. These movies are not going to be significantly improved by being on a much better piece of technology, providing the image replay as, as, a, as a player, as a projector. At some point, my jump into LaserDisc and DVD was all about saying, I think this is a medium that can provide the best possible copy to preserve the quality that's already on the film. There's no special effects here, um, or the effects that there are are not quote-unquote special by our modern standards. There are things about movies like uh, Buster Keaton's Sherlock Jr. that make it in every way you know, superior to anything that George Lucas has done in something like 25 years. But it's not because of the brilliance of the special effects. You put a movie like Sherlock Jr. in a DVD player and put that on your TV, that's as good as you're going to get. Blu-ray is not going to make that image much better. In fact, any sort of HD is not going to make that image much better. And in fact, in some ways, the HD movement has been a problem for people who are somewhat low-budget in their filmmaking approach. Uh, Doctor Who, for example, when they look back at their 1970s and early 80s material, find that um, the last thing you need is to do a better job of showing just exactly how makeshift some of the sets and props were. The adult film industry actually had a moment of sheer panic when a lot of the people whose livelihood depends upon what they look like realized for the first time that things that in the past had not been that visible, things like razor burn, were going to become very visible in either one of these two types of HD media. So my first problem was I didn't see a good reason to upgrade to a quote-unquote better quality picture to begin with. If your effects need to be shown on that caliber of technology, maybe they weren't that special to start off. But the other issue was you had to know, just like these two drugstores right across the street on two separate parts of town, two sets of drugstores, you have to know that there's an empty building in your future, that there's a piece of retail landscape that's been predetermined by a company that frankly doesn't need to be doing competition in that particular location for that particular reason. And here you are with Toshiba and Sony going head to head and the only thing guaranteed by the competition between Blu-ray and HD DVD is that a landfill was going to be filled by the loser. And the next best probability was that the landfill was going to be filled by both of the losers, if not now, certainly eventually, because we become a disposable culture. 
We have not become a society that in the entertainment and arts industry makes the majority of its money by the creation of new and brilliant artistic endeavors. Instead, most of the money is made by having people rebuy their copy of the White Album one more time. It's an excellent joke from the Men in Black film where um, the uh, introduction of new technology was credited to aliens by the Tommy Lee Jones character, and he reacts to it you know, in a somewhat circumspect way by saying, well, looks like I'm going to have to buy another copy of the White Album. It's exactly that problem. I know people who have picked up copies of movies like Star Wars and Raiders of the Lost Ark on beta. My family was one of them. Turn around and do it again on VHS. Turn around and do it again on Laserdisc. Turn around and do it again on DVD. All that makes sense if you've lost the player that you had to play it with or confidence in what the player could give you. The jump from VHS into digital made total sense. But a lot of those people have another copy of both of those films and countless others, Back to the Future and others, because they're always moving to the bigger, better deal. This in some ways ties into the way our society has dealt with relationships and the whole notion behind the um, disposability of relationships, too. Divorce being just a matter of the inevitable step through it that you go through to trade up into the bigger, better deal. Or I would say to trade down into the item that on the store shelf says best value, but really only means cheaper. Now, in the case of Blu-ray, I don't dispute the fact that it's probably a much higher quality. And I don't dispute the fact that, at the very least, when you pick up things on sale, the players have come down in price. You can begin to see the cost of the software itself, the actual movie titles coming down in price. But I'm not sold on the idea that I need to buy any of the movies that I already own again. And I wonder how long it will take before somebody puts out a DVD copy of Carlos Sara's 1971 surrealist film, The Garden of Delights. Because... However long it's taken to go from VHS to DVD, it's probably going to take even longer to get a Blu-ray copy. In other words, Blu-ray may be dead and gone before some of my favorite films ever get released on Blu-ray, because some of those favorite films haven't been released on DVD. I mentioned on an episode some time ago that when Compact Disc first came out, I made a list of 25 albums that I absolutely positively had to have before I'd be happy moving from vinyl to Compact Disc. And I said at the time, and I'll say it again, there's at least a couple of titles that were on that list that still are not available on DVD or MP3 after all those years. If I have a vinyl copy of that, it's a pretty good argument for keeping a hold of my turntable. And so here we are with the next technology probably around the corner. And my question is, will that technology be introduced with an entrepreneurial battleground set where ultimately at the end of the day, one company is going to win and one company is going to lose. But either way, a lot of people are going to be filling the landfill. Not directly, of course, but if you had the Toshiba HD DVD product and, you know, a couple dozen uh, HD DVDs, the, the, the movies to play on their player, what do you do? Do you set that player off in a corner and say, okay, these are the movies that I watch on this player and everything else I'm going to watch either on my old DVD copy, I'm going to watch it on the brand new Blu-ray player that I had to get because Blu-ray won and the Toshiba product lost. Or do you end up replacing those titles on Blu-ray? And then what ultimately happens with your other player? This is the nature of the disposability, and it carries a cost. There's an environmental cost, if nothing else, to the fact that we're throwing stuff out. 
Worse, though, is the intelligence cost or the economic opportunity cost with the fact that this waste is built right in. Let me make sort of a blanket statement, and then I'm going to riff off it just a little bit. Some of the greatest innovations in U.S. history have come with government support and with governmental strings attached related to what we might call industry standards. Nowhere is this more true than the defense industry, for example, where multiple businesses are allowed to compete for the same manufacturing dollar, but the the government is dictating to a certain degree what products it is that they're looking for and what products they are willing to buy. It is not a full-on guessing game where we're spending a lot of money to manufacture a lot of very expensive electronic products without any notion of which one's going to be the standard. This idea that, uh, well, what will we do if the same thing were the standard for compact discs? It didn't pan out that way. And I haven't read extensively enough to know kind of what led to CD being the standard for um, digital audio media. But whatever it was, thank goodness for it. Otherwise, we all might be sitting with three or four different kinds of digital media players in our basements or in our music rooms with some songs that we can only play on one machine versus another. We got pretty close to that with iTunes versus everybody else, where there were certain things that for whatever reason, if you moved iTunes, you can't go back. Or if you bought it on the other piece of software, you can't move it to iTunes. Um, we played that game again in terms of disposability. At least in this case, it's not something that's going to fill a landfill, at least not directly, but it's going to occupy memory in a way that it probably should not. Here's my issue with it, though. If I were to come along much stronger than this and say that probably the government should have been involved in playing an active role in helping us vet which one of the two pieces of technology was going to be the direction that the nation should go in, and then turning manufacturers loose on their version that leveraged that particular technology, how many people in the way we discuss things in politics today would quickly, in an almost knee-jerk reaction, denounce that as socialism? Well, you know what? There was a time in post-World War II, particularly the 1950s and 1960s, where this has a lot to do with how we did business. A lot of the concepts that we have today for how we're using modern versions of old ideas like patents and trademarks came down to establishing what the industry standards would be and then investing the creativity, the marketing, if you will, into how to use the technology to create products that customers would want. It might be one thing to say, I've got an audio cassette player and you can buy that in a console, you can buy it as a standalone component, you can buy that in something that is portable, you know, like a, a boombox for want of a better word. You can buy that in something that you install in your car. There's lots of different ways of picking up that product. And maybe along the way, some of the versions of that died because they couldn't compete. But we weren't dealing with 16 different ideas on how to play music through magnetic tape. We had a single player. We had a single standard. And somewhere along the way, that industry standard happened in, in a manner that wasn't as costly to the customer who happened to guess wrong and bet on the wrong company, and it wasn't as costly from the perspective of how much stuff we're throwing away and walking away from. Our resources are scarce, and too often we act like they're not. And a lot of times we don't feel like they're scarce because we're rolling back prices right and left on things that we take for granted today. But we're rolling back the prices on things that we're buying more often than we ever used to. If you had the unfortunate news of hearing that you were going to be replacing a major appliance in your home, dishwasher, washer and dryer, air conditioner or furnace, 
how long would your expectation be that you were buying that for you know, maybe the last time? There was a point in time in my parents' life when they believed that they were buying a washer and dryer that was going to last them 20 or 30 years. Those days have become as disposable as the products that we're buying and selling. I think we do a disservice to major issues by labeling them liberal and conservative. There's an idea that we have, and it's probably a false idea, that environmentalism is always going to be a liberal idea. And therefore, those of us who feel we're politically conservative should look at that concept with some weariness. Or the other way around. There are certain concepts like uh, you know, capital punishment that we might look at that and say, well, that's an inherently conservative idea. And because I'm not necessarily a law and order hawk conservative, I should look at that somewhat skeptically. As I hope I covered last week, you can be okay with the idea that there is a death penalty and still reasonably opposed to its um, unfortunate overuse. Or you can you know, feel that the death penalty is something that we should almost never use, but feel like maybe it makes sense to have it around in case some really egregious and deadly form of treason were committed, for example. And here we are again with this issue of, envirom- of environmentalism. And is there a voice that's moderate or a voice that's conservative there? Or do we think of everybody who champions this cause as being some sort of, I don't know, a hippie? One of the voices of reason that sits on my bookshelf and has ever since I was in high school on the question of truly the question of environmentalism is Jerry Mander and his book Four Arguments for the Elimination of Television. Now, on one level of each one of us disconnected our cable and, and unplugged our TV and you know, wheeled it out to the corner and, and gave it away to anybody who might pass by or um, set it up for it to be hauled off to the trash, that would be creating a lot of pollution. A lot of dangerous pollution because, again, these sort of high-end electronics these days tend to have things which should not just be disposed of in a landfill. I'm not referring to environmentalism from that perspective. But I would you know, be remiss if I didn't talk about gerrymander from a more of a biographical perspective and did speak of him as somebody who, maybe more than any other issue, has spoken passionately and clearly about the environment. So let me start there before I get into his actual concepts and dialogue on television. Jerry Mander was one of those folks who was born during the Depression. And I think sometimes we get a little bit misty-eyed about this and say, well, you know, if you were born in the middle of the 1930s, you've got a different idea about waste than everyone else does. And I wonder if we take that a little bit too much for granted. If you were born on May 1st of 1936, you probably have no real tangible memories of the Great Depression. Your first tangible memories were more likely to be of World War II. So I don't necessarily think that being, you know, that because he grew up during the Depression, informed all the rest of, of, his, of his decisions and set him on a particular life path. I would, however, agree that when your parents grew up during that time of poverty and hardship, and if you were born into a time of poverty and hardship, that is going to leave an impression. And so I think that in some ways it's almost an inherited perception of what the Depression was like. Mander would go on to get advanced education, a bachelor's degree in economics, a master's degree in, in uh, international economics, and from there, had a 15-year career working in advertising. That career in advertising perhaps gave him a perspective that you couldn't get if you didn't have such a career. You would need to be somebody who was right there at the front lines of trying to create products and concepts that would persuade your average consumer to buy. 
not necessarily by showing them the product and saying how great it is, but in some ways by using psychological techniques to show them a product and create an almost um, subconscious need for the product, regardless of what the product's actual qualities might be. Excellent advertising executed perfectly can persuade someone to buy something that is toxic and poisonous for him and use the product. That's the power of advertising. And what uh, Jerry Mander discovered um, near the end, actually, of his advertising career was that television as a medium was able to exploit the negative qualities of advertising better than almost anything else and to create, again, this culture of disposability that we're wrestling with today. We're wrestling with it today, but for me, perhaps the first time I heard somebody call this out and, for want of a better word, predict it, was Jerry Mander. In 1977, with the first publication of his book, Four Arguments for the Elimination of Television. Seems to me the right place to go from here is simply to share Mander's arguments, riff against them a little bit, and talk about how it connects back to the problem that I think we have in dealing with environmentalism. If we have one economic idea that says it's really important that the free market rule and that competition is the way to get the best results and kind of measure that against what it leaves in its wake in terms of pollution and of waste, of misuse of resources. But first, gerrymander. Argument one, the mediation of experience. As humans have moved into totally artificial environments, our direct contact with and knowledge of the planet has been snapped. Disconnected, like astronauts floating in space, we cannot know up from down or truth from fiction. Conditions are appropriate for the implantation of arbitrary realities. Television is one recent example of this, a serious one, since it greatly accelerates the problem. I will only make one quick argument in favor of this first argument introduced by Mander. Reality television. We take for granted that we know what this means when the concept itself is a direct result of this sort of disconnectedness, this snapping of reality. We know that reality TV isn't real. There's every reason to believe that it's probably by and large scripted, or at least, you know, scenario driven. And yet we absorb it as if it was really happening. People talk about um, characters, for want of a better word, on reality TV programs like Snooki and The Situation, as if they're real people. And on one level, they are real people. They aren't technically actors. But on the other hand, they're not real either. Disconnected like astronauts floating in space. It's hard to know up from down and truth from fiction. When the fictional characters we're enjoying on reality TV probably really are named what the show says they're named. Argument two, the colonization of experience. It is no accident that television has been dominated by a handful of corporate powers. Neither is it accidental that television has been used to recreate human beings into a new form that matches the artificial, commercial environment. A conspiracy of technological and economic factors made this inevitable and continue to. We have laws in place and Supreme Court cases talking about the quote-unquote public airwaves. And yet, so little of those airwaves are actually owned and quote-unquote operated by the public. Most of our media, in fact, is in the hands of a very small number of men, or at the very least, people. Argument 3. Effects of Television on the Human Being 
Television technology produces neurophysiological responses in the people who watch it. It may create illness. It certainly produces confusion and submission to external imagery. Taken together, the effects amount to conditioning for autocratic control. This is an advertising man speaking about advertising's ability to tell you what you need when what it really is is what you may or may not even want. The effects of television on the human being. And when you think about the isolating impact of television, how often is it that a family watching a TV show together, instead of discussing what's happening on the program, is more likely to shush each other and ask each other not to interrupt? We think we've got something up on the control of advertising over the media by our ability to fast forward through all those ads. But fast forwarding through all those ads further eliminates discussion about what has been seen on the screen. Argument four, the inherent biases of television. Along with the venality of its controllers, the technology of television predetermines the boundaries of its content. Some information can be conveyed completely, some partially, some not at all. The most effective telecommunications are the gross, simplified, linear messages and programs which conveniently fit the purposes of the medium's commercial controllers. Television's highest potential is advertising. This cannot be changed. The bias is inherent in the technology. I believe the Peter Weir film, The Truman Show, does a nice job of showing this. If you created a television program with absolutely no opportunity for direct commercial interruption, would the scope of advertising be controlled? Would the reach of advertising into the programs be mitigated? Or would you simply ramp up, in almost egregious ways, the types and the frequency of product placement. In his book, Mander provides numerous examples of this, and many of them are worth sharing, so I'll just drop them in and see if you don't feel that it's true in terms of what he describes as things which television can communicate well and easily, and things that television doesn't communicate all that well at all. War works so much better than peace. Violence better than nonviolence. Cars are more visible on television than any living, moving thing. Religions with charismatic leaders work so much better than leaderless or nature-based religions like Zen Buddhism. Charismatic leaders also apply in political movements as well, where Mao is an easier way to transmit the ideas of Chinese communism than any discussion of the concepts inherent in communism to begin with. It's easier to show one than many, the close-up, for example. For the same reason, hierarchy is easier to report upon than democracy or collectivity. The superficial is easier than the deep. Short are better than things which are long and complex. Verbal information is easier to convey than sensory information because television can deliver words with little information loss. But a lot of times images requires uh, more skill, more artistry, and more talent. This was even more so uh, true back when he wrote this, when we were dealing with smaller television screens and um, much less precise pictures. Lust is easier to show than satisfaction. Anger is better than mere anxiety. Passionate love, easier to convey than brotherly love or agape love. He goes on and on and on, and I could go with him, finishing with the obvious that the finite is easier than the infinite. There is a limitation to the technology. It isn't enough to say the medium is the message. The limitations of the medium create a limitation of the message. We see this in politics. 
the concept of presidential debates have gone from our iconic ideas of Lincoln and Douglas speaking for hours and hours and, and long speeches with counterpoints to those speeches to two minutes with one minute of rebuttal. The finite is easier to show than the infinite. On the one hand, Mander talks about television being beyond reform, that the limitation is the media itself. And that distinguishes him greatly from people who were contemporary to him and complaining about very specific things. Violence on television, language on television, nudity or partial nudity on cable, then the burgeoning cable television. All of those things where people were trying to reform television. And Mander was saying, no, the media itself is beyond reform. It doesn't serve a democratic purpose. Its best and highest purpose is autocratic control. But he also is quick to acknowledge that television has done some good. No matter what side of the political spectrum you may be on, televised McCarthy hearings or uh, the Watergate hearings would be one example of a, you know, a good, positive, social, political use of TV. And from the other side of the political spectrum, I don't believe we would have had a president, Ronald Reagan, had there not been a television for the great communicator to communicate on any more than most people believe or have accepted the idea that without television, Kennedy perhaps would not have become president over Nixon, or at least would not have been viewed as being the winner in presidential debates versus Nixon, that the visual element has served both sides of the political spectrum very well, and all sides of the political spectrum have been very good at manipulating it, particularly Republicans and Democrats. Now, Mander goes into the environmental direction by suggesting that perhaps all of the technological developments that we've made should be viewed with some degree of suspicion, that we should challenge whether the advance in technology is good for us or good for the planet and to weigh those cost-benefit analyses before we proceed. He quotes someone in his book named David Brower, president of the Friends of the Earth, who has argued that unlike human beings accused of crimes and being innocent until proven guilty, all technology should be assumed guilty of dangerous effects until proven innocent. No new technology should be ever introduced, he has said, until its ultimate effects are known and explained to the population. This is necessary, Brower feels, because once it has been introduced, getting rid of any technology is practically impossible. Brower was right about technology in general, and specifically right about television. I walk a very strange and hypocritical line. I am a consumer of television. The reality TV that I watch we call sports and has been around so much longer than any of the cheap game shows we see today passed off as reality TV. But even, if, even without sports, I'm certain that I would use my television on a regular basis as the medium that I use to convey movies, whether they're in a videotape you know, style or a DVD style. Uh, the television's not leaving my house anytime soon, and I don't think I'm even capable of limiting myself to just um, sports, news, and film. I think that there's going to be sitcoms in there. There's going to be mystery cop and crime procedurals in there, because I'm a consumer just like everyone else. In other words, by not setting an industry standard that vetted the potential negative influences of television early enough, we now have television that's not going away. And... Unlike previous inappropriate conversations where I've done my best to try to at least suggest a, uh, a step in another direction, a step in the right direction, in this case, I've got to be honest, I have no idea what to do about it. But I think it makes sense to give Jerry Mander credit for raising the question. Just because the question can't be answered doesn't mean it's a bad question. 
In fact, a lot of times, the questions that present us with problems that need to be solved and can't be answered are the best questions of all, even if they make us uncomfortable. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation, I can be reached at ic underscore greg at hotmail.com. And uh, comments are enabled at the website, http colon slash slash inappropriateconversations.podbean.com. Thanks for listening.